Well, welcome to Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and uh, with me, as always, is the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Moranis. And uh, we have something special this morning. We have a transatlantic podcast, not just one of these provincial things, New Yorker to New York, New Yorker, but we have a man uh, from uh, the city of London. And his name is Matthew Earle, and he's managing partner and founder of Shadowfall Capital and Research. And um, we'll be hearing from Matt in just a moment. But uh, in the meantime, Evan, I, I had a singular experience. I am speaking to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to you from the village of Schoharie in upstate New York, where uh, Patricia, my wife, and I spent about half our time. We're half in New York and half in Schoharie. And this morning, I drove, as is my want, I drove into the uh, the Stewart shop, which is a country store nearby, to uh, buy uh, newspapers. That's a generational thing, Evan. I buy newspapers. They're on paper. And uh, I walked into the Stewart shop uh, a little self-consciously because I had um, I had a I couldn't find the mask, a stupid, filthy surgical mask, and you know this this prop, this theatrical prop of quote these difficult times. I couldn't find that thing, so I walk into the steward shop wearing my wife's femme mask with a kind of a gold chain dangling down from it because that's the way she wears it. I felt stupid wearing this thing, extra stupid. I always feel stupid wearing these masks. I walked in not quite reading the sign on the door. The sign, as I later discovered, said, in effect, no mask required, because we've gotten over that, much to my delight subsequently. But in the meantime, I'm walking in, not only wearing a stupid mask, but also wearing a feminized one. And I'm a a little self-conscious at the age of 74 and 78, so one wants to keep up appearances. But I noticed that the funny thing about the crowd in the store, nobody was wearing a mask. (laughs) So deliverance. Evan, deliverance. We, we are making progress. Nice to hear we're making progress in one thing. <laughs> well, progress in, in many things. I, I think it's a, uh, progress in um, the rate of inflation. It's higher. Progress in the Fed's balance, Fed's balance sheet. That's fatter. Uh, progress in the size of the reverse repo facility, that uh, polysyllabic thing, which, Evan, as you know, signifies the following. It signifies a man named Jay Powell playing a fire hose into an overflowing uh, storm drain. That's what a reverse repo facility is when there is too much money in the banking system and not enough assets in real life. The banks put this money back to the Fed on overnight hire or weekly hire, so-called reverse repurchase agreement. And it's so chock-a-block full of the banking system's redundant funds that the Fed must take these back again and lend in exchange, you know, mortgage-backed securities, treasuries, what have you. So this is where we've come to. I mean, Evan, you've been all the story about the, uh, the uh, uh, diminishing returns to QE, but my goodness, they buy $120 billion a month, and they're surprised when um, there is too much uh, liquidity around. Uh, so, so to borrow from uh, Bernanke, you're saying there's green shoots. No, I'm saying it's waist deep. <laughs> <laughs> so Matthew, Matthew Earle is our guest today, and he's managing partner and founder of Shadowfall Capital and Research. Uh, research uh, is not the only thing they do. They manage money, selling high and buying low sometimes. And um, uh, Matthew is, uh, brings to the table uh, a Master of Mathematics degree from the University of St. Andrews. And uh, he's had a sell-side career and now an entrepreneurial career. He has uh, invested, he is investing, and he, uh, he knows all sorts of stuff. So, Matthew, Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. And I wanted I wanted to begin by asking you um, of of what utility 
is an, an education in mathematics in this day and age, seemingly, of MEM investing and, uh, and uh, I don't know, it, 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 the arithmetic doesn't seem to work as it once did in the realm of investing, or is that a misconception? No, I, I, I begrudgingly agree with you. Um, I think it's certainly a diminishing uh, skill sets in terms of its applicability. Um, I think when I started off, it served me quite well in that fundamentally what I always enjoyed with mathematics was that there was certainly a logical element to it and there was quite a, an elegant uh, way of proving things. You can prove things in various manners, but uh, ultimately you can get to the crux of the matter um, and, and have a solution and an answer. Whereas I think um, these days it, it doesn't necessarily count as much. Um, I mean, one of the strongest proofs that I always used to lean on was proof by contradiction, which was, I found incredibly applicable to um, company or rhetoric from company management, which was that you give them essentially the benefit of the doubt um, in terms of what they're telling you. But if you were to find an instance which would contradict that, i.e. that they were telling you a porky, then that would question uh, the veracity of what they've told you historically or, or on other occasions. I think I've heard a new noun. They are telling you a porky? A porky, yes, a fib or a, a lie. <laughs> essentially. It's, a, it's a polite <laughs> phrase for a lie. <laughs> it comes from porky pie. <laughs> well, we have super abundant pork here. <laughs> Evan, can you, can you think of instances in which we ourselves have been fed pork? Oh, all the time. I mean, uh, pick up just any kind of SPAC merger presentation. They'll tell you that the company is going to go from $0 in revenue this year to $5 billion 2025. I I've read, like, basically 100 of these, and they all have, like, the same plot line. Zero revenues now, but $2 billion, $5 billion in five years now. And it's like financial fan fiction. Yeah. So, um, Matt, t tell us, uh, to begin with, if you would, please, what is the state of play in London and on the continent with respect to the fine art of short selling. I know that you've done other things in your life. I know that you're not yeah. dedicating entirely um, to this business of uh, uncovering fraud and uh, driving what we call in the trade uh, a little, a little uh, pompously, I must say, alpha. That is to say, making money from uh, things that are mispriced to the upside. What is the, uh, the state of speculative effervescence? What is the uh, set of opportunities in the markets in which you deal? Is it uh, the opportunities more compelling on the long side or the short side? Um, I think on the short side, we're, there's, there's more opportunity than ever. The problem is, is trying to determine what um, presents those best opportunities out of that, that set that's available and, and what people necessarily care about in this environment. I mean, there are things that I think people may have deeply cared about two or three years ago, they don't necessarily um, get too fussed about these days. I, I think it's not necessarily that the opportunities aren't there. It's just trying to um, to work out what inflicts people's switches, essentially. Um, so I, I, I would say that increasingly so, there's a, there's a greater focus on ESG uh, approaches to investing and where you've got uh, instances where perhaps um, companies aren't towing the line of an ESG approach as much as their investors think they might be, then that starts to, that can have issues um, further down the line. But um, it's just, it's always difficult. I mean, I've never known it more difficult than it is in this current environment. I've been doing it for about 10 years or so, short selling. 
Yeah. It seems like there's two groups that um, kind of doubt bad news, and one is investors themselves, but the other is the regulators. And um, you were one of the first voices on Wirecard to actually bring up issues in that. And I believe that Wirecard didn't actually get its comeuppance until mid-last year. Um, how do you deal with um, kind of the double fact that investors don't seem to actually read the reports themselves and don't seem to care about what seem like seemingly glaring bad news, and the regulators themselves seem to brush it under the rug or even buy shares in the companies themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think the the investor base is, is still probably probably as credulous as it's ever been, if not perhaps more so, um, just generally across, across Europe. Um, obviously, that, that, that doesn't apply to everyone, but... Um, what's been fascinating over the past year is that I think on the short side across the pond over in, in the US, the short activists or short sellers have had a bit of a tough time, whereas actually post, I, I say we live in a post Wirecard era now in Europe where there are some glimmers of hope in terms of the approach to uh, heeding the warnings from short sellers or whistleblowers. So put things into context, I mean, Wirecard was probably the most obvious fraud in Europe for at least a decade. Um, it's just that any time that any critic of the company, uh, whether it was a whistleblower or, or um, a short seller or a journalist, de- decided to try and raise awareness of the issues with the company, um, one, the investor base just blithely ignored it. Um, the investment bank analysts just came to the rallying defense of the company and wrote their perfunctory buy recommendations and, and lofty target prices. And But I think more damningly or more, more, what made it more difficult was that from a regulatory perspective, the German regulator, Barfin, um, they actually actively pursued the critics of the company and sought to, to essentially prosecute them, again, whether they were short sellers or journalists, for what they classed to be market manipulation. Um, they didn't give any view that what was being said about the company may actually be accurate, which obviously um, it turns out that it was entirely accurate, hence the collapse of Wirecard in, in June last year. So what you've seen over the past year is, um, I think, a lot of introspection, certainly in Germany, where you might expect it to be felt most, where uh, there has been repercussions in terms of the, the regulatory level where the president uh, of Barfin, or the former president of Barfin, Felix Hufeld, had to resign, um, as did his underling, the vice president, um, and you're also seeing that with some of the kind of so-called enablers of these sorts of uh, instances, people, uh, you know, firms like the audit firms, where the EY audited Wirecard for over a decade. Again, they didn't pay any um, attention to the warnings that were given, and they're now paying dearly for the reputational damage of having been associated with it. Most recently, this week, where I think it was the FT reported that Deutsche Bank have decided to. Um, to tender out for the audit um, amongst the other big four, rather than EY. Again, when you get um, you feel the back of the hand of Deutsche Bank, you have felt scorn. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Even if Deutsche, Deutsche are going to you've really hit hard times, I guess. <laughs> hey, Matt, Matthew, you you had early in your career, you had one of these formative experiences, one of the uh, kind of experiences that to a you know a person just starting out in a career can uh, can lead you in a certain direction. So uh, there was a stock called Conit PLC, and everyone loved it. And you saw something that others didn't, and you issued a, a bearish analysis of Conot. Is it did you say Conot? Or you, you of all people, I know how to pronounce this thing. Conot, uh, yes, yeah. Conot, yeah. And within six months, it was broke. So 
that first of all must have been uh, most uh, inspiriting and uh, encouraging. But do you ever wish that you had never done that and instead had fallen in with the kind of the 72 degree Fahrenheit room temperature crowd that just buys indices and goes home on the weekends without anxiety and that seems to do rather well in life? The short selling business, it's a hard way to make a living. Have you ever had second thoughts about it? Well, I did at the time, um, leading up before it actually collapsed and, and went spectacularly bust because it was pretty stressful. Um, I mean, certainly not as stressful as the whole Wirecard saga, but it was at least a good, I guess, grounding for what was to come with Wirecard later. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the time, the, this was a company that it wasn't particularly an enormous company in terms of market value. I think it was about 700 million sterling market value, but it was widely loved by side and most of the, the pension funds and institutions over here um, because it was a relatively steady performer. Um, I mean, the honest truth is that I kind of stumbled into it because um, I just looked at it, I guess, with a fresh pair of eyes and thought, well, a lot of the things with this company don't really make much sense in terms of the capitalization policy where they suddenly embarked on a significant spending spree buying, uh, investing in software development. Well, what this company did was uh, do repair social housing, um, fixing light bulbs and broken doors and installing bathrooms. So quite why they needed to spend huge amounts on software, I, I wasn't sure. Um, and so there were other aspects like that that didn't really make much sense. I rather naively, I guess, being younger at the time, in uh, slightly green, put out a sell recommendation. And as you might expect, it wasn't taken too well by the management, or, <laughs> nor the, the proponents of the company. So um, management wrote emails saying that I was a, they said I, I performed a masterful feat of incompetence, that I was a mediocre <laughs> analyst, I got my numbers completely wrong, um, which I had because in the event I was far too optimistic. Um, but, uh, <laughs> But this lasted you know, for about five or six months. I, I switched firms as well at the time. I was headhunted to go elsewhere. And, of course, as soon as they caught wind of that, they spread the rumor that I'd been fired for incompetence. <laughs> and then um, you know, after a month or so, when I pitched up at this new shop, they, uh, they, they, they revealed that they were a glorious fraud and that they'd, they'd hidden, I think it was about 100 million or 200 million of debt uh, under the carpet. Um, Did they ever say sorry to you? Oh, no, no. No, this is the other thing. I mean, nothing ever really came of it in terms of uh, any repercussions for the management. I mean, I think they sold a fair amount of stock in the run-up to the downfall of the company, yeah. certainly the year, the year prior to it, and they made off like bandits. The CFO of the company, I think the last I heard, he was, he launched a restaurant in Devon or somewhere in the, on the <laughs> southwest coast. So he said, I said he went from cooking the books at Connaught to, to just general cook, using cooking books <laughs> <laughs> we were talking yeah. with uh, Matthew Earle, who is managing partner and founder of uh, Shortfall. Oh, Shortfall. Actually, yeah, Shortfall. Shadowfall Capital and Research in uh, in London. And Matt, I wanted, so uh, as you have been gathering, um, Shadowfall is a specialist in uh, the fine art of selling high and buying low. And Matthew, tell me, I'm, I'm so I'm, um, imagine I am uh, not some uh, uh, journo from across the pond, but I'm a substantial uh, citizen in uh, the UK. And I come to you with 5 million quid and I say, uh, Matthew, I do not like the cut of the jib of this market one bit. I would like you to uh, make these 5 million quid prodigious 
by implementing short sales. Now, how would you go about investing a new increment of investable funds? Uh, specifically, would you hedge out market risk? Uh, would you not hedge? Would you invest immediately? Would you bide your time? Tell us how you actually do this thing of short selling. Yeah, so um, we essentially have uh, two offerings. One, we have direct investment into the shadow pool fund, which is actually a market neutral fund. So it, within the fund, we manage a concentrated short book, which is typically around 10 positions. Um, we don't use any gearing in, in, in that we're, we're not lunatics on the, uh, the leverage side of things, um, which, which is incredibly dangerous with short selling anyway. Um, but what we do is we managed roughly around 10 positions. We allocate the capital. Obviously, they'll have different weightings in the book. And then we hedge out the beta risk by buying the, uh, the equivalent beta uh, weighting on the stock 600, uh, or the, the Euro stock 600, I should add. And then we, we recalibrate that, that hedging instrument on a daily basis, essentially, to take into account market movements. So what we're trying to do is fundamentally beat the market, but on the short side, and to generate short alpha. Um, and so that's what we offer in the fund. And then we also offer uh, the ability to, to do so-called SMAs or managed, managed accounts, um, where either they fully replicate that, that fund structure or some instances it might be that they, the, the ultimate investor just purely wants the short exposure because they're naturally long elsewhere and they use us to essentially try to generate short alpha um, versus hedging out their, their long exposure. Yeah. Um, where are you finding the most promising or compelling short ideas on the continent of Europe or in the UK? Uh, it's I guess probably 40% of our book is typically UK exposed. Um, it fluctuates a bit, but generally it's, it's more UK. That, I, I'd argue that's probably two, re two main reasons. One is because obviously there is that language barrier um, where, where we dig down into the weeds with subsidiary filings. Um, if it's a European issuer, obviously the top co is going to be publishing in English, but the, the quality of data um, at the subsidiary level, if you're looking into kind of French subsidiaries or Belgian or Lux subsidiaries, one, the quality of the data is not particularly great sometimes, and two, then you also have that language barrier where you can translate it, but it's quite time-consuming to do so. Um, and then the other instance being that uh, I think historically the UK uh, investment scene has been a, a little bit more akin to uh, that of the, the US market in terms of more open-minded and perhaps more willing to, to actually appreciate that there may be a bear argument on the company rather than I think some, some kind of long-only European institutions which are a bit reluctant to actually um, acknowledge that there may be question marks over what they, they may have invested into. Although, that's, you know, yeah. although I'd say right now, uh, short selling is at multi-decade low in the, the U.S., and we have a retail forward who's trying to, like, you know, harangue short sellers. So <laughs> maybe the sentiment has changed some. Well, do you do any short well, selling in the U.S.? Yeah. No, we don't, no. Um, I mean, we only focus on U.K. and continental Europe. Um, I think the U.S. is pretty well covered. Uh, obviously, there's quite a few short activists over in the U.S. I mean, I, I say short activists. I class us as a short activist, but with a very small A in the... We don't go active on everything that we, we, we research into or that goes into the fund. Um, we just put our head above the parapet every now and again where we generally think that there's a, a pretty strong public interest element to, um, to the, the investment case. But no, we, we focus on UK and continental Europe.
And we only look at companies typically over a billion in market value as well, because ultimately we want to make sure that um, the ideas are actionable and that we, we take into account risk across the board, whether it's personal risk, um, obviously in the light of the experience of the wire card, or um, in terms of trade risk as well, because we want to make sure that we've got sufficient liquidity um, and that there's things like you know, the, the, the trades aren't too crowded, that there's plenty of borrower available, that the cost of borrow isn't prohibitively expensive as well. Um, so generally, we find that easier to accommodate when you're looking at, looking at issuers that are over a billion euro in, in market value. We were talking with uh, Matthew Earle, who is a managing partner and a founder, the founder of Shadowfall Capital and Research. Um, Matthew, I wanted to ask you about uh, about Wirecard, uh, which you were the original uh, discoverers of the fraud there. Um, and uh, tell me how the persistence of that fraud plays into the doctrine of efficient markets. Well, I mean, the unfortunately, it severely undermines it. The, <laughs> The Wirecard was the issues with Wirecard were raised by numerous people. I mean, obviously, um, the Financial Times journalist there, Dan McCrum, he'd been writing on the company and, and raising issues with the company since I think it was 2014 or 2015. Um, prior to that, there'd been I think it was 2007 or 2008. There was at their AGM, someone had popped up at the AGM and and took management to task for falsifying the accounts at that stage in time. So this was a pretty well-known, obvious fraud, but it sort of became a parody of itself in a way, I would argue, in that the more that was it, it was alleged against it, and the, the easier it found, or the more it could deflect that, uh, and it became Teflon-like, um, I guess a lot of the investors in it took encouragement from that and decided that either, one, there could be nothing um, untoward with the company because given everything that had been alleged against it, you would have thought that the regulator or legal authorities would have stepped in to, to query that and to investigate it. Or um, this thing's absolutely bulletproof until obviously it's not. So, yeah, I mean, this was very widely known. But obviously, the issue was more latterly over, I guess, the last four or five years of its lifetime was that I imagine that management thought at some point they're going to they, they will really have run out of road and they, they were pushing their luck. And so they became very aggressive against critics of the company by uh, placing critics under surveillance, um, trying to discredit them by releasing uh, kind of so-called doxing documents on the internet to discredit any critic of the company or possibly commissioning firms to, to target the critics with uh, sophisticated cyber hacking attempts as well or legal pressure. As well, I mean, I received, uh, when is it, December 2016, a very threatening legal letter from Wirecard's lawyers accusing me of everything under the sun. It was market manipulation, um, uh, conspiracy, collusion, um, everything apart from murder, I think it was. <laughs> so what happened to that law firm? Well, they, I think they stopped acting for Wirecard after a time. I mean, what was frustrating was that the my lawyers... Um, obviously, who I use, they said, well, they, they don't really have a leg to stand on because if they did, then they'd be able to articulate what it is exactly they were claiming. 
So, for example, if they would claim defamation, we would respond to say, well, that's all well and good, but could you specify what exactly has been defamatory about uh, what the, the research that has been put out? Now, of course, they couldn't specify what was defamatory because it was it was true. Um, so, if you if you do wish to proceed to court, then that's quite a fundamental flaw in your ability to do so. Because as soon as you get in front of a judge, the judge is going to say, right, what are we here for? Okay, it's a def defamation case. What's the defamation? Um, yeah. And if you can't determine that, then you don't have a legal claim. Now, let, so, let, me, let me ask you this. Was Wirecard for you a foreshadow fall? Was it a profitable transaction after all this, after all the legal costs, after all the aggravation? Was it a moneymaker? It was. Yeah, it was. Um, I stopped trading it in... Uh, I, I made money in 2016, and then thereafter I didn't because uh, I tried to raise awareness publicly throughout 2016. And then when that wasn't working, then I started a kind of a, a private battle against the company by, well, eventually going all over the world to try and raise awareness. So yeah. um, I met with the London Metropolitan Police. I spoke to the FCA here in the UK. Um, I tried to reach out to Barkin, but they, that was a big death. Uh, deaf ear to any uh, any um, uh, ability to listen to what I was saying. Um, I ended up going to see the Munich public prosecutor in Germany to, to present uh, evidence to them. I even saw the FBI and the Department of Justice in um, St. One St. Andrews Plaza in New York. So the problem was that at that point in time because I was I was kind of this was all non-public. It didn't feel appropriate having those conversations to be trading in the company. Um, no, I, I, I once I I, um, I told you know Jim Chanos, don't you? I'm sure you know of him. I don't know. Oh, you know of him, of course. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, New York, uh, famous American short seller. A legend. Told, yes. Yes, and I told Jim that. Um, no, you actually are an investigative journalist, Monkey. That if journalism paid as little as $25 million a year, you would be writing for the New York Times rather than. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you oh, know? yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, because you'd have like, well, you'd have a bit more protection, I would imagine, because you'd have a, a, a bigger team around you and, um, uh, and, a dental, and a dental plan and all, yeah, all the other amenities exactly. of corporate life. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, okay, so it finally or semi-finally, Matthew Earl, founder of Shadowfall Capital and Research. Um, what's the next wire card? And that now, uh, wait, wait. Hey, you, if you're uncomfortable telling us the name or the ticker, uh, you can just uh, send it to Evan, and, and 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 we will put it in grants. And we, uh, our readers are so discreet that only they will know. All right. So okay. So <laughs> what's the next wire card? Oh, I, I mean, I, I hope there is not another wire card in terms of all the, the trials and tribulations of it. Of course, that doesn't mean that there's, there's not another fraud out there. But um, I hope that wire cards is a complete once-in-a-lifetime event. Um, there's lots of companies right now where there's a lot of things that don't make much sense. I think you guys actually uh, had a wrote up a, a very good piece on this company oh, some years back now called Kerry Group in um, in Ireland, which is a, a food ingredients business where this is a very acquisitive company. We're shorted, by the way, I should add, just for full disclosure. Um, but this is about a 20 billion euro market value company listed in London and in Ireland. It, it, it has two parts of its business, consumer foods and, and food ingredients. And it's largely grown by acquisition. And the issue we have with the company is, one, it's, it's it doesn't really give much away in terms of what it's acquiring um, in terms of financial metrics. 
but where it is available, then we can't really make the numbers add up. So we're pretty bearish on on that yeah. company. Yeah, um, Evan's good work. Yeah. And yeah. just in terms of uh, their disclosure, it's not just the acquisitions. I remember going through their financial reports, and it's hard to understand exactly what they do and how profitable they are. Their, their disclosure was not good. No, not at, no, absolutely. I mean, and it doesn't really make much sense either in terms of the reasons they provide as to why their disclosure is limited. So, for example, I think recently they were they were asked about it, and they said, "Oh, well, you know, we're buying companies off of we're making acquisitions off of small family businesses that don't really want wish to have much." disclosure, um, which it certainly wasn't the case with some of the, the big acquisitions they've made over recent years, where I think one of the businesses they bought was a, a vinegar company called Fleischmann's Vinegar, which they bought off of um, Green Plains, which is a US-listed company. Um, and Green Plains actually gave more disclosure than Kerry. So <laughs> you, these sorts of arguments don't really stack up. And, and then you have to one wonders why they're being so reluctant to provide much information around these things. I know. Um, but yeah. yeah. I know. I know why. Um, you can read about that in grants. But Bo, before we uh, before we wind up, I should I, we have to, uh, Evan. I forgot the commercial. So let's see. Uh, subscribe to Grants Interest Rate Observer and invest with Shadowfall Capital and Research. That's simple, right? To the point. Works for me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, Matthew Earl, it has been a delightful experience talking with you. Thanks for uh, bringing us up to date on the uh, selling high and buying low business in London and the continent of Europe. And we will talk to you again soon, I hope. And uh, Evan, good to catch up with you, comrade. And uh, just keep on not wearing that mask. It's my advice. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Evan. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Yes. Happy weekend to you, Matthew, and to our listeners. Uh, have a, uh, I guess the weekend will have been over. But in any case, enjoy the next weekend. Until next time, <laughs> this is Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. 